Welcome to the online home of Providence Christian Church in Cape Coral, Florida. If you would like more information, visit us online at ProvidenceCapeCoral.com. Now may the Lord bless the preaching and the hearing of His Word. This morning we're continuing our series in the Minor Prophets. And as a reminder to you, the designation Minor Prophet is not a comment on the content of these books, that they are minor in significance but rather on their length. And as you'll see in Obadiah this morning, just 21 verses, a single chapter. We're uncertain who uh, or when Obadiah is writing. He's writing to the southern kingdom of Judah. But we can guess that he's writing around the time of the Babylonian conquest of Jerusalem as God's enemies ride out against God's people in Jerusalem. Really a low point for God's people. So would you follow along as I read Obadiah verses 1 through 4? The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We've heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be active in our hearts and in our minds, shining light into dark places where we need to gain understanding, where our affections need to be changed or challenged, where we need to live more closely in alignment with your holy word. Would you do that work, we pray, in our midst. In the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's funny how uh, certain things stick in your mind and certain things do not. I would struggle to tell you what I had for dinner on Thursday night. But I can remember clearly a single phrase that one of my college professors in Bible college said to me about 15 years ago, now at this point. He said, in order to love your enemies, you have to know who they are. In order to love your enemies, you have to know who they are. He's riffing, of course, on Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, where Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This statement, in order to love your enemies, you have to know who they are, it presses on us in a number of uncomfortable ways. Now, I should say from the start that as we're talking about enemies this morning, and we will be talking a lot about enemies from the book of Obadiah, we're not speaking of those that have a personal vendetta against us because we've wronged them in some way. There are people in this life who are enemies of ours, and probably rightly so. We've sinned against them. We've wronged them. That's not who we're talking about this morning. Nor are we speaking of those that we have a personal vendetta against because of some sinful gripe, some jealousy, some rivalry that we've stirred up between us and them. We're talking about those who stand against us as God's people Because we're God's people. That's who we're talking about 
And we're speaking of enemies this morning. Those who, knowingly or not, they revile us and persecute us, not because of us, but on Jesus' account. Those who, knowingly or not, ultimately stand against God's kingdom, God's anointed King Jesus, and against God Himself. My professor's statement presses on the uncomfortable biblical truth that we, as God's people, are to love those enemies. Brent just referenced the Jonah sermon from just a few weeks ago, from Jonah chapter 3, where God is challenging the prophet to love the Ninevites, people very clearly who were enemies of God's people in his time. But Jonah was not allowed to pick and choose who God could render beyond the pale simply because of Jonah's arbitrary uh, things that he was thinking about them, who he should show mercy to or not. Jonah struggled to show love to the Ninevites, to show mercy to them, even though God had shown him great mercy. You have to remember that God loved us in Jesus while we were yet enemies. He calls us as well to love our enemies, as difficult as that is. My professor's statement also presses on the uncomfortable biblical truth that we, as God's people, have enemies. Now, I think many of us try to do an end around on this commandment to love our enemies by acting like we don't have any. We think maybe if we're just gentle enough and kind enough, if we're as obedient to our Heavenly Father as we can possibly be, who could have an issue with that, right? How could someone turn that into an enemy? And then we remember the life of our Lord Jesus, who was perfectly obedient to his Father in heaven, and his earthly life ended with crowds shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! We will have enemies. To name but a few, our belief that the Bible is God's inerrant word is absurd to the academic consensus in our day. Our belief that Jesus is God in flesh, our belief that Jesus performed miracles, that he was raised from the dead on the third day, that's ridiculous to our naturalistic culture. There's no way around that. Our belief that marriage is an institution of God for one man and one woman for life is ruled hate speech or intolerant. Our insistence that life begins at conception. That gender is assigned by God and inviolable. That's labeled narrow-minded and bigoted. If we stand on the truth of God's word, we will have enemies. There's no way around that. And finally, my professor's statement presses on the uncomfortable biblical truth that we have to learn to live in the presence of our enemies. In the present age, God doesn't call us as his people out of the presence of our enemies, maybe into secluded, selective, holy communities as if we could solve the problem of sin by geography. That doesn't work. Nor does God tell us that he's going to remove our enemies from us in this present age. In God's patience, he allows his people and the enemies of his people to live side by side until Jesus returns to judge the world and righteousness. That is God's wise and holy plan for his people and for the world. So how do we live as God's people? 
How do we learn to live in the presence of our enemies? Well, that's where the book of Obadiah becomes imminently helpful to us this morning. And while this book doesn't provide complete answers to that question, we need other portions of Scripture like the book of Jonah, like the Psalms, like the instruction of Jesus to round out this picture. Obadiah does provide some much-needed help for us. You see, in Obadiah, there's no question who the enemies of God's people are. The nation of Edom, and we'll get some background on them in just a minute, they've just witnessed the capital of Judah, the religious center of God's people, the location of God's holy temple, Jerusalem, invaded and pillaged. That's what they've just seen. Although we don't have a certain date on this, it is most likely when the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem in 586 B.C., then led God's people away into exile out of their homeland. The nation of Edom doesn't mourn when their neighbor on their western border is pillaged. They don't grieve for the lives lost, the lives displaced. They certainly don't offer to help God's people. They don't even tremble in fear that the same thing might happen to them. As we'll see in the book of Obadiah, they gloat. They celebrate. They boast over God's people. They join in the looting. They cut off the fugitives fleeing from the city. And Obadiah's words in this short book are to God's people heading into exile who are experiencing that at the hands of their enemies. Their lives upended, their city pillaged, the temple looted, and their enemies are gloating. They're celebrating. They're dancing on the temple mount. Obadiah's words are to God's people, but they're words about God's enemies, specifically the nation of Edom. And they're words that can help us as God's people live in the presence of our enemies. See, like God's people in the time of Obadiah, the Bible tells us that we are exiles on this earth. This world is not our home. Our citizenship, the city that we're seeking, is in heaven. And we'll have enemies in this life. Enemies who gloat when the church experiences hardship. Enemies who celebrate when the supposed ignorance and intolerance of Christians is exposed. Enemies who boast when biblical values and biblical morals are legislated against. Enemies who pile on when Christian leaders fall into sin. Enemies who gladly prey on the weak, who seek to lead astray God's sheep. Nobody's words have a lot to tell us about how we can live, how we can bear up in the presence of our enemies. I'll offer a word of warning this morning. If you've heard me preach before, it might sound a little bit different today. In order to pick up some of the detail from Obadiah, I'm venturing to guess many of us are not familiar with this book, don't have it memorized, just guessing. We're not going to be following a traditional outline. We'll follow this through section by section to pick up some important details, then drawing out some application at the end of the sermon. So please stick with me. In Obadiah verse 1, it says, The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. So the words of this book, they record a vision the Lord God gave to the prophet Obadiah concerning the nation of Edom. 
Now, if all we had were the actions of the nation of Edom at the time this was written, the gloating, the boasting, the celebrating over God's people, that would be bad enough. But what adds insult to injury is the fact that this wasn't just some random nation gloating over Israel's misfortune. Israel and Edom have centuries of bad blood leading up to this point. Now, some of you may know Israel is simply the name of the nation of people who are descendants of Jacob, who is later named Israel. Edom, on the other hand, is the name of the nation of people who are the descendants of his brother Esau. So these are nations born out of two brothers, twins, in fact. And it's not an exaggeration to say that from birth, these brothers were locked in conflict with one another. You can go back to Genesis 25 and 27 to see some of this. But you've got Jacob, the younger brother, literally coming out of the womb, holding his brother's heel. It all starts there. You've got a prophecy from God to their mother, Rebekah, that two nations are in her womb, that the older would serve the younger. Esau would serve Jacob. You have Jacob taking Esau's birthright and his blessing in some pretty underhanded ways, to say the least, such that the end of Genesis 27, Esau vows to kill Jacob once their father is dead. There's some bad blood at the very start for these two brothers. Now that conflict between the brothers themselves, it cools off a little bit in the book of Genesis with Jacob's family remaining in the promised land, Esau's family traveling south and east by the Dead Sea. But conflict remained for their descendants. Most notably, when Jacob's offspring had become the nation of Israel. They're traveling back to the promised land from slavery in Egypt after 400 years. And what do they need? They need passage through the land of Esau's offspring, the land of Edom. Israel promises to stick to the highway, to cause no problems, to pay for any resources they require. They just need safe passage, seemingly the least that a brother nation could do one for another. Edom refuses. Israel's hour of need. They say no. So you'll actually find, if you read through the prophets, that outside of Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon, kind of the three big bads of the Old Testament, Edom is mentioned more than anyone else, and it's rarely positive. This is the nation God speaks against in Obadiah's vision. These are the enemies of God's people gloating over the downfall of Jerusalem. So you can imagine the ache, the pain, the hardship for God's people. There is history here between these two. They're bitter rivals celebrating their homes destroyed, their temple pillaged, and their lives upended. So at the time of Obadiah's vision, these enemies of God's people were secure and they were satisfied with not a care in the world. God's people are perishing and God's enemies are partying. They're living it up. But in the first four verses of Obadiah's vision, God makes clear that God's enemies are not, in fact, safe. He continues on. We've heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling. 
who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. These first four verses, they're a call to battle from God to the nations of the world to ride out against Edom. God's enemies may feel safe and secure at the moment. God has the nations of the world and their armies at his disposal. In pride, the Edomites thought their topography would certainly protect them from foreign armies. This description, you who live in the clefts of the rock in your glory, in your lofty dwelling, this is a literal description for the nation of Edom. This nation was built in the rocky, craggy heights south and east of Israel, difficult to travel through in this day, easy to defend. You might think in your minds of the well-known facade of the ancient city of Petra, carved into a sheer rock cliff, stunning red rock, made famous, yes, in Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade, if you're thinking of that. Those types of carvings wouldn't exist for another 500 years in Edom. But that's representative of the landscape in this area. Narrow canyons, rocky terrain, dwellings in the heights. This is an almost impossible combination for ancient warfare to overcome. So you can understand why Edom felt so secure. Why in the pride of their hearts they could say, Who will bring me down to the ground? Are you going to ride horses in here? Are you going to bring siege engines? It's not going to happen. Topography is no hindrance to God in bringing judgment on his enemies. The God who spoke the universe into existence will have no difficulty leveling mountains if need be to get his, his enemies. And so this is how God responds to Edom's pride. Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars from there, I will bring you down, declares the Lord. The mountain heights of Edom are not so high as to be unassailable to God. Even the stars in the sky don't exceed the reach of the God who has his throne in the highest heavens. To paraphrase Psalm 139, there's nowhere in all creation where God's people can flee from God's presence. There's also nowhere in all creation where God's enemies can hide and be safe. From his wrath. It doesn't exist. But it sure seems that way to God's people. As they're traveling the long road to exile, the gloating, the boasting of their enemies ringing in their ears as they travel, and it often doesn't seem that way to us as we live in the presence of our enemies. But God's enemies are not safe. In verses 5 to 9, we find that God's enemies will be destroyed completely. It says, If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed, would they not only steal enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They've prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Why not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom. 
and understanding out of Mount Esau. Your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Taman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. The destruction that God guarantees for Edom, enemies of his people, is absolute. This language is stark and unflinching in its appraisal of Edom's chances of survival. This imagery that God uses here in verses 5 and 6 of thieves and of plunders breaking in at night, that of harvesters collecting grapes, they're communicating the same message. God says, think about thieves. When they break into your home, they don't typically come in and empty everything out. They take what they can carry. Think of harvesters working in the field. Even they miss some grapes. Even they leave gleanings for poor people. That's not how it's going to be for Edom. They would be so lucky as to only have some of their possessions stolen. To have some grapes left in the field. But at the time of the destruction of God's enemies, what God calls that day, nothing will be left. Nothing salvageable. Nothing escaping. And he drives this point home by underscoring specifically that the wise and the mighty will not be spared destruction. Personal brilliance, access to the corridors of power will mean nothing when God comes in judgment against his enemies. The implication is that if the wise and the powerful are not spared, then neither will the ignorant or the weak. God's judgment will be complete. Now, it needs saying that this doesn't mean that every last member of the nation of Edom would be killed and undergo final judgment. Just as there are those in the days of Obadiah and Israel who are not truly of God's people and will thus undergo final judgment, certainly in the nation of Edom, there are some who are truly of God's people. And we'll avoid final judgment because of the work of Jesus on their behalf. But what this does mean is that all of God's enemies, without exception, will be destroyed undergoing final judgment on that day. Nothing left in Edom's house that is not pillaged. No grapes left on the vine. The wise and the powerful destroyed. Why exactly will nothing be left in Edom's house? Why exactly will the wise and the powerful be destroyed? Well, the next section provides an entire laundry list, if you're curious. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, this is verse 10, shame shall cover you. You shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of of distress. What verses 10 and 11 are making clear 
is that the commands God issues to the people of Edom in verses 12 to 14, these are not commands for how they should treat their brother Jacob. These are commands for how they should have treated their brother Jacob. In other words, these aren't hypothetical commands for the hypothetical instance that Jerusalem is pillaged. This is how Edom should have treated their brother on the day that strangers carried off his well. But instead, they did violence. They stood aloof. They were like those who entered his gates in conquest, those casting lots for Jerusalem. And the further implication is that every one of these negative commands, Edom actually did. No, Edom wasn't the instigator of this violence. Babylon was. But they may as well have been. They gloated over the day of Israel's misfortune. They rejoiced over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. They boasted in the day of his distress. They gloated over his disaster in the day of his calamity. They looted his wealth. They stood at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. They handed over his survivors on the day of the distress. And they did all of this to the nation. We're reminded twice in these verses that it was like a brother to them. Now, believe it or not, This laundry list of Edom's sin against their brother Israel. Remember, this is a message being spoken to Israel, not to Edom. This actually had to provide some measure of comfort for God's people heading into exile. No, God had not turned a blind eye to his people. Their mistreatment at the hands of their enemies. In fact, he was keeping a detailed list of everything done against them. He doesn't miss one. The God who sees all things and knows all things sees and knows every wrong, every injustice perpetrated against his people. Nothing will be forgotten. Nothing will be excused. Nothing will be missed. God sees it all. But again... Apart from this vision graciously revealed to the prophet Obadiah by the Lord God, there's no way that God's people would know that at the time. This is not what they're experiencing. All their experience of invasion and pillaging and exile had to scream, God is blind to our suffering. He doesn't see us or he doesn't care. This vision to Obadiah is proclaiming that God saw in detail. And God's enemies will answer for all of their wrongdoing. Now, if this isn't enough to show us that God's destruction of his enemies isn't capricious or vengeful or unjust, the next verses highlight the perfect justice of God. Verse 15, it says, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, It shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape. And it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire. The house of Joseph, a flame. The house of Esau, stubble. They shall burn them 
and consume them. And there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. God's judgment on the nation of Edom, these enemies of God's people, it's part of a much larger judgment on all the enemies of God's people in every place and in every age. It's a part of the day of the Lord. And God assures His people on the road to exile, the day of the Lord is near. God's people won't languish under the brutality, the boasting of their enemies forever. Now keep in mind that centuries had passed since God prophesied to Rebekah that the older brother Esau would serve the younger Jacob. Further centuries had passed since Edom had turned desperate Israel away at its borders during the exile. He said, sorry, we're not going to help. Find someone else. But God would bring judgment on the enemies of his people. In the perfect timing of God, that judgment is near. Now, historically speaking, only three decades or so would pass before Babylon, who had invaded Jerusalem, they will also attack Edom. Edom would continue on as a minor player in the Middle East, usually as someone's vassal state serving some greater empire, until it disappears from history altogether in the first century A.D. Historically speaking, judgment on Edom was near. Once it's just, just decades away, this earthly judgment on the nation of Edom is simply an intrusion, a foreshadowing of God's final judgment on the nations. That day that's being talked about in the book of Obadiah, both in the 6th century B.C. and also in the 1st century A.D., during which many of the punishments that we see here were actually carried out in history, that's an anticipation, a foretaste of another day, the great and terrible day of the Lord, a day that should ever seem near in our hearts, in our minds, conscious as we are that there is a coming judgment. If the previous section showed us that this judgment will be complete, that no detail will be missed, these verses, verses 15 to 18, they show us that this judgment will be perfectly just. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. God is depicting a perfect execution of what's become known as the lex talionis, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. A system that can and is abused by human judges and it's turned into brutality. In the hands of a holy God, this means perfect, equitable justice. God's enemies will get exactly as they deserve. No more no less. Had the nations celebrated the downfall of God's people with drunken revelry on the Temple Mount, God will give them something to drink. This image is common throughout the prophets. God is going to give them the cup of His wrath, and they'll drink it to its dregs. His concept of perfect justice should offer no comfort to God's enemies. It will be terrifying but it will be perfectly just. Esau is represented here as stubble, hay to be consumed by the fire. God's judgments against his enemies will be perfectly just. They will not be averted 
and they're near. But while the day of the Lord is a day to be feared for God's enemies, it's a day for God's people to welcome with rejoicing. Look at the last three verses. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau. Those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim, the land of Samaria. And Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as the Zarephath. The exiles of Jerusalem who are in Shepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. The final words of this vision to Obadiah is that exile is not the final word for God's people. These verses depict a glorious homecoming for God's people currently marching to Babylon, but also something much more substantial than a homecoming. If you're not up on your biblical geography, I'll try to help you out a little bit. A lot of these place names are looking at the historical markers of the land of Israel. So this is a homecoming of sorts. They're going to possess the land. But God also intermixes lands and people that lay outside those boundaries, including people like the Edomites, the Philistines, the Canaanites, who had traditionally been the enemies of God's people. So this return from exile is not some simple possession of a piece of property. It's not just a restoration for God's people. It's a consummation. Saviors, the same word used for judges earlier in the Old Testament, they will reign on Mount Zion over the enemies of God's people. The kingdom will be the Lord's. So for God's people pressed under the thumbs of Babylonian oppression, of Edomite gloating, there offered a future of resplendent hope. A future in which their enemies are judged, God's people find refuge, and God rules over a kingdom that extends far beyond the boundaries of Israel, where God reigns over the nations of the world forever. This is the vision of Obadiah. The words of the Lord concerning Edom. Now I hope your mind has already begun to fire with some potential application of this book. We are God's people living as exiles. Sojourners on this earth. God's people who live often in the presence of enemies. So let's close with a few tentative applications. First, Obadiah tells us that we can take comfort in the fact that life in the presence of our enemies is not life apart from the rule and the reign of God. Life in the presence of our enemies is not life outside God's rule and God's reign. The book of Obadiah clearly and unequivocally answers many of the questions that we have as we're living in the presence of our enemies. When our enemies are gloating over us, is God not strong enough to confront our enemies? Has he become overwhelmed? No. He will level mountains. He will tear our enemies down from the stars if need be. But judgment will our enemies will be held to account. Has God turned a blind eye to the suffering of his people? 
Is He unaware or unconcerned with our hardship? No, God is capable of giving a more exacting account of our enemies' offenses given against us than we would ever be able to keep. He is keeping a laundry list. And for those of our enemies who do not find refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ, they will answer for every one of those offenses. God is not blind. He sees everything. Every slander, every boast, every slight, every grievance, every outburst of violence, every persecution, it is all marked down. And God will execute perfect justice. Does God then not care about justice? If he's strong enough to confront our enemies, if he knows all of our suffering and hardship, why doesn't he do something? Obadiah tells us that a day is coming And in fact, it's near when God will call all of our enemies to account. For those who have not turned to Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, those who remain the enemies of God, the enemies of his people, they will be punished with perfect justice. As they have done, it shall be done to them. Brothers and sisters, life in the presence of our enemies is often painful. It is often difficult. But our God rules and reigns over all things. And he is coming soon to set all things right. Second, let's remember that the schemes of our enemies will never thwart God's plans. The schemes of our enemies will never thwart God's plans. For centuries, God's people had received the short end of the stick, and I think that's speaking mildly in their dealings with the Edomites. Rejected at their borders during the Exodus, mocked and jeered during the exile into Babylon. But the book of Obadiah assures us this is not the end of the story. Although all appearances are to the contrary at the moment, Edom's story ends in judgment and destruction. Although all appearances are to the contrary at the moment, the story of God's people ends in restoration and consummation. In this connection, it's worth pointing out that this isn't the last conflict we see in the Bible between a descendant of Jacob and a descendant of Esau. When we get to the New Testament, those from the region of Edom are now called Edomaeans. We learn about two prominent Edomaeans during the life of Jesus. Jesus, who is a true son of Israel. Both of them are named Herod. Herod the Great, the father, attempts to put Jesus to death when he's an infant. But God's plans are not thwarted. Jesus' family warns him by an angel, and they flee to Egypt. Herod Antipas, the son, plays a more passive role in the later successful attempt on Jesus' life at his crucifixion. Interestingly, a role that looks a lot like that in the book of Obadiah. More gloating and boasting and cheering on those actually carrying out the violence. But God's plans, again, are not thwarted. When Jesus is raised from the dead in power three days later. See, God's enemies don't win. Even when it seems like they do. Brothers and sisters, life in the presence of our enemies often feels like losing. But we serve a God who raises the dead. 
So for those of us who've been united to Jesus by faith, who or what can separate us from his love in Christ Jesus? Not death itself. Certainly not our enemies. Third and finally, let's rejoice that the day of the Lord is being talked about in Obadiah as near has already dawned in our own day. Passages like Obadiah 19 to 21, they draw the hearts of God's people forward in anticipation of a time when God will rule over the nations in righteousness, when God's enemies will be judged, God's people will be rescued. And we still await this day in its fullness. But with the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, that day has dawned. We don't look for human saviors of Obadiah 21 to go up to Mount Zion and rule over our enemies. We have a Savior who has ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God in heavenly Mount Zion, ruling over the nations now. A Savior who's offered up for all time a single sacrifice for sins to rescue His people. A Savior who waits until that time when inevitably His enemies will be made a footstool for His feet. This day, with the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, has already dawned. Brothers and sisters, the day is coming. And it's already dawned when we will no longer struggle and strive in the presence of our enemies. But when we will rest and rejoice in the presence of the triune God forever. Let's pray. Thank you for tuning in for today's message. If you would like more information about Providence Christian Church in Cape Coral, Florida, visit us online at ProvidenceCapeCoral.com.